Hello and welcome to How Many Geese. I'm Jack Baddams. And I'm Roddy Shaw. And if you're looking for a nature podcast that doesn't take itself too seriously... Then we are the natural selection. On today's show... We're 50% of the way there. If we just do some more testing and throw more ninjas at the situation, maybe we can fulfil it. The first step in successfully fighting a tasseled wobbegong is to visit a haberdashery and betassel yourself. I think if we put a radioactive mole from Bavaria in a hamster wheel, we might have just solved clean energy. <laughs> Listeners of How Many Geese, Roddy Shaw, I have a sequel for us. A, a sequel? A sequel. The second coming. <laughs> you may remember a couple of seasons ago, we did an episode called Nuclear Seagulls. Yes. In I, which yep. you told us about the Sellafield nuclear facility here in England yep. and how the seagulls were now becoming radioactive. Yeah, it wasn't, uh, it's not good. Yeah, it's not great. <laughs> the and, situation is largely <laughs> subpar, but it's the situation we have. And in a bid to expand the How Many Geese extended nuclear animals universe, I want to add another into the mix. The H-M-G-E-N-U. Coming to Disney Plus <laughs> in the very near future. Um, now, to talk about this particular animal that I want to induct into the HMG, whatever you just said, and you. How many geese extended nuclear animal, animal universe? H-M-G-E-N-A-U. You. The Humjanak. Yes. The Humjanau. Humjanau. So I want to induct an animal into the Humjanau, but to do that, I've got to explain, as you did with Sellafield, how we get there. Okay? Yep. Now, Roddy, do you know what seismic event happened on the 26th of April, 1986? Chernobyl. Yeah, a pretty big one. If we're going to go nuclear events, they don't really come much bigger than this. For anyone who doesn't know, for anyone out there who doesn't know what Chernobyl is, it Firstly, was... Where have you been? <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, I mean, even it popped up recently, didn't it? A couple of years ago when the, Russia took it. And also the HBO series on Chernobyl is fantastic. I've not seen it actually, but I have it heard great things. fantastic. Stop listening to this. <laughs> Watch all 10 episodes of that. It might even be eight. Then come back. But if you want it summarised in four lines, I'm here to do that for you instead. <laughs> is there anything he can't do? <laughs> Chernobyl was a nuclear power plant in the north of Soviet Ukraine, near the town of Pripyat. And during a test of the steam turbines, a lot of very complicated things happened that culminated in a power surge at the base of reactor number four and a subsequent explosion and meltdown. It was an absolute disaster, generating 400 times more radioactive fallout than the nuclear bomb dropped on Hiroshima in Japan. So it wasn't great. Over 100,000 people had to be evacuated from the surrounding area after an exclusion zone of 19 miles was set up in the aftermath. And now it's, I mean, it's one of the most famous sort of no-go areas in the world. Also a major event in the collapse of the Soviet Union itself. Oh, was it? Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, not too... Well, I don't know if there are any further spoilers which can be revealed in the story of Chernobyl given that <laughs> it happened and it was bad. But the it's, from watching the HBO thing, almost one of the reasons it was so bad was because of it exposed all this like cover-up by the state. 
in like the state was like nothing's wrong here nothing could possibly be wrong here this is russia the state looks after you everything's fine but chernobyl was so massive that they couldn't contain that lie basically and so it peeled back the thing on the kind of state control and everything else and was just a major sort of reveal on their lack of control ah. of the situation. Well, I mean, we're going to reveal in this how far-reaching the effects of Chernobyl were. But obviously, in terms of the human cost, massive. Mm. Um, but this is how many geese. What about the animals? Unsurprisingly, wildlife numbers dropped in the immediate aftermath of the explosion. But Roddy, I'm sure you and many of our listeners will know what's become of Chernobyl now. It's a sort of uh, haunted forest wasteland where nature has taken over Pripyat yeah, it's, and is coming back. It's amazing. And the images that listeners you may be familiar with is the town of Pripyat and the Ferris wheel mm. and the abandoned fairground. And there's a famous sort of swimming pool area. And it's it's been completely left as it was. People evacuated on the spot, had to leave. Nobody's been back to live there. Uh, and then the forest has come back in uh, and nature has come back into this area. The exclusion zone has been extended to a thousand square miles and the almost complete desertion of humans and the return of the forest has meant that Chernobyl has gone on to become this amazing, unexpected wildlife refuge. It's full of moose, there's bears, there's boars, there's, uh, I always pronounce it wrong, Provalsky's wild horses there. Um, there's lynx. At one time, it was reported that the wolf population was seven times higher than the surrounding area. But that's just because all the wolves had seven heads. Yeah, well, Sure. Some studies have shown that some of the birds have got tumours and unusually small brains and that the bank voles have got cataracts and produce rubbish wonky sperm. But, and here's the fantastic quote, it appears the damaging effects of radiation inside the zone may be less than the damaging effects posed by humans outside of it. Well. Even at the site of the worst radioactive disaster on planet Earth, animals are still better off because we're not there. Fuck. That's that's something, isn't it? I so, mean, when, when, when you started talking, my brain went to Chernobyl. Okay, the impacts of the blow-up, blah, 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 etc. radiation. Because mm. we never have any idea what the other's going to say. But yeah. I kind of am familiar with the Chernobyl radiation story. Um, I wasn't familiar with that sentence. Yeah. I hate that sentence. <laughs> And it's, yeah, there is, I remember actually when I was uh, sort of in my early 20s and I was doing a lot of, well, like me and you, we met on the expedition and I was looking at doing a lot of jobs sort of around the world. I was looking at this site that posted lots of ornithology jobs. And one of them was going into the Chernobyl exclusion zone and taking blood samples from swallows nesting in the buildings uh, and basically just having a look at their radiation levels because there is a lot of science going on inside chernobyl having a look at the mutations and the effects that the radiation has been having on the animals but the facts of the matter is is from a, a sheer sort of numbers perspective the animals are doing pretty well in chernobyl and they're doing far better than they were when the humans were there there's way more detail that we could go into about the chernobyl exclusion zone and the wildlife that exists there um, but i want to move on to something else into a minute that's linked to chernobyl but not actually based uh, at the site itself but one cool thing that i did found still sticking with chernobyl for a minute is that there's a load of feral dogs there yep that were just left when people evacuated 
which have now just been forced to live wild. And there's a whole mix of them left behind. So you've got like, when they left, we're talking like modern breeds, mastiffs, schnauzers, boxers, terriers, all that sort of stuff, were just left and have been living there for decades. Some of them right around the reactor. And I found a study of the dogs of Chernobyl, which said that the ones living around the reactor skew heavily towards German Shepherd, which is a hint that the animals have largely kept their ancestral roots, is what it says. I would suggest if you were to suddenly let all dog breeds go feral into the wild, it's not unsurprising that German Shepherds would be the ones to come out on top. And I just wanted to ask you what you think would be the first to go. Pugs. I've written here, pugs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the greatest mistake mankind has ever made, and I say that with the full knowledge that this is an episode on Chernobyl. <laughs> Yeah, closely followed by Pekingese. Yeah. Which are basically seemingly long-haired pugs. Imagine being a pug and being abandoned in Pripyat. Just have, imagine being a pug and just having to fend for yourself without modern medicine. Just imagine being a pug. <laughs> that in itself is damning enough. <laughs> I, I hate them. <laughs> they are like, a, yeah, yeah. They're not great. But yeah, so th- there's all these feral dogs living, you know, alongside the wolves and all these things that are in there as well. But uh, around the reactor, there was this really interesting study. It's not what I'm going to tackle now, but there is a cool study out there looking into the genetics of the feral dogs from right around the reactor and then getting further and further and further out and looking at the mutations that they've got and all that sort of stuff. But anyway, the thing I actually want to talk about as the spiritual sequel to your episode of the nuclear seagulls in the northeast, that's where Stella Field was? Northwest. Wasn't it? Northwest, sorry. Cumbria. Cumbria, that was it. Is nuclear sheep in Wales. Yeah. I had never heard about this, but this was quite a big thing. In the aftermath of the Chernobyl reactor meltdown, radioactive clouds built up over Europe. Those clouds blew 2,000 miles to the UK, where heavy rain washed the radiation into the ground, which was then absorbed by the plants. And in Wales, there's a lot of sheep, and they like to eat a lot of plants, a lot of radioactive grass, as it turned out. And in the days following the disaster, the UK government had to ban the sale of sheep in parts of Wales and Cumbria and Scotland, and animals could not be moved around the land. Strict restrictions had to be put on Welsh animals not being allowed to enter the food chain without rigorous safety tests. And at the peak of these restrictions, there were 10,000 farms and 4 million sheep under the restrictions that were supposed to last no longer. They said this is not going to last any longer than three months. In 1996, 10 years after the disaster, sheep in some parts of Wales were still failing these radioactive tests. So 10 years after, there were still sheep that were too radioactive to possibly be considered to enter the food chain or even move them around. They couldn't even risk moving them around. Yeah, I mean, it's not great, is it? No. I did wonder how they actually tested the radiation on the uh, sheep. And I found this very high-tech description which says a radiation monitor was held against the sheep. In my head, <laughs> in my head, basically, that's just a Geiger counter. Yeah. Just next it going closer and closer to the sheep and too many clicks and you can't eat it. <laughs> <laughs> if you wanted to sell your sheep, someone from the government had to come and scan it. If you were like, I want to sell this sheep, you had to wait. It was something like three to five working days for somebody from the government to come along and scan your sheep and say, yeah, 
that one's sellable. You can take that one off the land or no, you've got to keep that here. But would, would, would if all of the sheep had been in the one field, were they all as radioactive as each other? Or would you have to scan each individual sheep? Or did you just scan one sheep and it was assumed that all of the sheep were... Don't know. Yeah. Good question. Because mm-hmm. the the rains fell, like the, the distribution of the radiation is patchy in various places. In some areas it was quite intense and that's why it lasted, you know, 10 years later they're still failing radioactive tests where in other areas they were able to release the restrictions much earlier. Yeah. Um, but once it's in the sheep, then they're poo becomes radioactive and yeah. literally everything about that sheep becomes radioactive so they cannot be moved at all hmm. it took until the 1st of june 2012 for the last 300 farms in wales to be released from chernobyl radiation restrictions what is that 28 years later when was 86 86 20 26 26 years later Jesus. That Chernobyl had a meltdown and Welsh farmers couldn't sell their sheep. 300 farms still under restrictions that they were told were going to last for three months were still not able to freely move their sheep around, sell them without testing. Is it is radiation poisoning hereditary? Does it go, or is it just the fact that the plants yeah, were? It's the soil. It's, it's, the it's soil. because it's because it's living in the. It's been rained onto yeah. the grass, and it's, and because of course when the sheep are eating the grass, they're never killing that plant. You're yeah. only ever, you know, you're just grazing off the leaves, and yeah. then they grow yeah. back, yeah. and they grow back, and they grow back. So it just took the time. The radiation had to decay. Basically, you were waiting for the half life of the, the the whatever it is, whatever radioactive element to just decay before those sheep became safe at a safe level to either enter the food chain or be moved around to other farms. Well, do you know what then? Considering that, wasn't it in... I mean, I guess in Sellafield it was the... Actually, I'm thinking about this, and yeah, because even though it's like 26 years is a very long time, but I was thinking when we did the Sellafield episode, the half-lives they were talking about in decontaminating the site were in hundreds of thousands of years, right? But I guess that is ground zero yeah because sellafield they're disposing of nuclear waste is that right but it's also the spot right because i was like 26 years god if the half-life's only 26 years that's in the chemistry half-life world maybe not that bad but it's 26 years thousands of miles from 2000 miles miles from the place rained out of the sky yeah 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 yeah. (laughs) rather than the actual material itself Yeah. yeah so we've got the nuclear sheep in wales which are impacted by Chernobyl. We've got the nuclear seagulls in Cumbria impacted by Sellafield. But even though thousands of miles removed in terms of the sheep and Chernobyl, we're still talking about, with the sites of Chernobyl and Sellafield, sites that are in the nuclear business. Yeah. Okay? So they are ones that are disposing, uh, and we can link the nuclear animal to the nuclear site. Okay. okay? Yeah. But there is another way that radioactive elements can get into animals that isn't nuclear power. Any idea? How nuclear material, nuclear radiation, can get into animals? Food chain. Not the food chain. I can give you a clue. Yep. If I tell you that next we're going to go to, and I might pronounce this wrong, Enoetic Atoll... In the middle of the Pacific Ocean. 
Nuclear testing. Nuclear testing. Godzilla. (laughs) (laughs) So we're halfway between Australia and Hawaii. And yes, you've got it. We're going to be talking about nuclear testing because... That's right, those lovable rogues over in the United States of America captured the atoll in the Second World War and proceeded to bomb the absolute shit out of it when they conducted no less than 43 nuclear tests there between 1948 and 1958. Yep. They buried the resulting waste in a concrete tomb, which then, in classic nuclear waste disposal, began to leak. So there's now this leaking nuclear waste all over the atoll. Absolute classic (laughs) nuclear waste move. Scientists came along to look at the sea turtles there and found traces of radiation in layers on the turtle's shell, basically like tree rings. So they can have a look at the turtle's shells and they can map the levels of radiation that they were exposed to at any given time by looking at the layers that are deposited in the shell. And which ones glow. Yeah, just by turning the lights on. Yeah. So you've got mutant turtles, scientists yet to confirm whether they are in fact teenage and ninjas. <laughs> we're halfway there. We're 50%. We're 50% of the way there. If we just do some more testing and throw more ninjas at the situation, maybe we can fulfill it. What they what they need is they need a mutant rat to go to the island and teach them the ways. Yeah. Yeah. of martial arts who was it, it wasn't sensei sensei shredder uh splinter splinter, splinter is the splinter. Uh, yeah. yeah well on that note i don't know how big you how, how much you know your teenage mutant ninja turtles but the next mutant animal that i want to go to is, is it a rhino or a who's the other guy warthog what's yes bebop and rocksteady bebop and rocksteady okay so bebop was yep. a mutant warthog okay which is clo- a close enough segue yep. to get us into the forests of Bavaria yep. in Germany, where the wild boar are insane levels of radioactive. Are we back with Chernobyl as the culprit? Well, this is the thing. Just to explain how radioactive these boar are, the European safety level for radiation in meat for human consumption is set at 600 becquerels per kilo. Okay? Okay. I don't know what that is. No, neither do I. Neither do I, but I'm going to give you, you know, you'll you'll see. Okay. In a recent study published in August last year, fingers on the pulse of new science here at How Many Geese. Always. Samples of wild boar tongues found that there were 15,000 becquerels of radiation for every kilogram of meat. But that that is the finest becquerel cut (laughs) like if you went to your butcher and you said i'm looking for becquerel he would immediately go to prepare the tongue yes you would yes sir you know the haunches there's nothing there there's not a bit of becquerel flavor in your haunch it's in the tongue where you can really taste the becquerel so we're talking from 600 becquerels is what you're allowed to eat to 15,000 becquerels of radiation and these are wild boar just living in the forests of bavaria and just like you said it had previously been assumed that the radioactive boar must have been contaminated by chernobyl fallout yeah just in the same way that we talked about the sheep also um reindeer up in scandinavia they also got pretty heavily contaminated in certain parts with the uh chernobyl fallout too with the rain raining down on the lichens and things like that and then the reindeer eating it and do we have a tongue becquerel count for the reindeer no we don't but it's coming so close off the back of christmas yep we once did an episode about rudolph's red nose we did i'd like to posit radiation poisoning (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, yeah, I also kind of steamrolled through the numbers you're actually putting out there. I mean, 600 to 15,000 is what, 10, 20, 25 times? Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. So bad. And and boar are, all across Europe, a very commonly hunted and eaten animal. Yeah. We've yeah. done the explosion of wild boar across Europe. There's lots of them out there. But in the forests of Bavaria, they are insanely radioactive. Um, and this recent study that looked at the Becquerel levels was then able to trace the nuclear isotopes found in the meat to where it had come from. Basically like a nuclear fingerprint. It could track it back to exactly the sources. And they found that 68% of the radiation within these bore came from nuclear weapons testing. And that could be anywhere from from testing in Siberia to tests that had been done in the Pacific Ocean. Had found its way into the wild boar of Bavaria. Why just the boar? Good question. Mm. So the final bit I wanted to say is the boar have such a high level of radiation because they feed on fungi. So things like truffles and things that they're rootling through the ground, whereas your deer and your other things are just browsing from leaves. The radiation sits in the soil for much longer. And boar are really the only animal certainly of their size and eating that much quantity, that are rootling through the earth. So they're disturbing it all a lot more. It's settling in the earth. There's also some evidence that things like fungi extract it more and hold it within themselves more, whether that's to do with microwisal networks and all that sort of stuff. Miscellaneous fungi. Yeah. (laughs) Shenanigans. Exactly. But the main thing seems to be that the boar are actively disturbing the ground. And whereas the radiation can sit in the ground and the deer and things can walk across it and they can eat the leaves and things like that and it's not so bad, because the boar are actually rootling through the soil, eating that soil as well as eating the fungi and things like that, they're ingesting much higher levels of this radiation. Well, surely then a mole must be positively atomic. (laughs) The untapped potential. I think if we put a mole in a hamster wheel, we might have just solved clean energy. A radioactive mole from Bavaria in a hamster wheel, I then... Think, I don't even think we need the hamster wheel. I just think if you take a mole and two crocodile clips, like when you're doing GCSE electronics, and just clip them at either end of the mole, you could power a small city. <laughs> Bavaria's wildlife needs studying yeah. in more depth. Pissing about with tidal energy. Elon Musk is trying to go to Mars. We haven't actually tried to plug a mole in to the national... Just, just into the socket. Just straight into a socket. <laughs> Directly into the switchboard. That thing, oh no, you, the two crocodile clips on the mole, and then, you know, in the big movies where they've got like that dial of power, and you just... <laughs> and the lights just bright and blows all the lights in the house. The fuses go. <laughs> the whole neighbourhood... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> We've lost Yorkshire to the... <laughs> we couldn't cope with the power. Exactly, yeah. Um, but yeah, I, what this study went to show was you would assume that with Chernobyl being so close that the source of radiation poisoning was Chernobyl, but that even nuclear testing in the Pacific, the radiation had travelled far enough that it was being found, those radioactive isotopes were being found years later in the meat of wild boar in the forests of Germany. So I think the sequel to Nuclear Seagulls is that we're all nuclear. We must all be nuclear in a way, because that's what I thought about as I read more and more about it and found 
out how ubiquitous it was in the environment that we must all be some levels of nuclear and it's not just from these big events that we've heard of like chernobyl and fukushima and things like that it's also from all these tests that have just been happening in the middle of these oceans on little sandy banks and it's still hanging around in the atmosphere it sounds like if you have a mushroom risotto you're screwed (laughs) oh you're done for yeah yeah if you eat mushrooms yeah corn's gonna be really (laughs) under the spotlight in terms of the you know yeah i mean people say lots of people like to say corns are natural they don't know the half of it exactly and i'm thinking all these like meat substitutes coming on the market now what they're not telling you although in the defense of the meat substitutes are they more or less radioactive than the actual meat they're replacing is what we've learned because the sheep are radioactive the pigs are radioactive yes but when i when i visit my butcher <laughs> i ask for the less bechdel cut of, oh, do you? of yeah I, i'm not here for the time you're not here for the finest becquerels exactly it's too expensive it's out of our price range <laughs> yeah. can you get your own becquerels tested that's a very personal question <laughs> <laughs> um i don't know that is a very good question. Because there are all those like gimmick companies that popped up, you know, find out your... I don't know what... Well, in London, certainly, because they all exploded for kind of get your COVID test to travel. Right. And then because the whole thing was a ridiculous political racket where it was like everyone's friends setting up these companies kind of thing, they then had to try and sustain themselves in some way after the boom. Uh-huh. And so now all the like get your COVID passport place are now get your health, you know, find your vitamin D level, oh. get your health portfolio but i've never seen anyone you know getting you, off the tube like what's your becquerel level if you walked in and said i want to know what my becquerels are in relation to a german wild boar <laughs> <laughs> just the look on there the training didn't prepare the under the hand contracts didn't prepare us for this yeah i don't know if the 22 year old work experience 22 work experience well you know <laughs> that's the state of the economy ah <laughs> uh, so yes there we have the spiritual sequel to nuclear seagulls nuclear sheep nuclear boar and teenage mutant ninja turtles we interrupt this broadcast to bring you a special announcement from our sponsors at Burda. sponsors more than sponsors friends 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 <laughs> it's not about the sponsors it's about the friends you made along the way exactly so we're here with the Burda session which this week jack is called it's peanut butter jelly time. <laughs> oh my God. I had such faith. <laughs> I had such faith. It's dashed. <laughs> so for anyone who doesn't know, Birder is a free app which helps you reconnect with nature by guiding you through bird watching, providing you challenges to complete. Whether you're new to bird watching or very experienced in nature and IDing animals, it's a great way to get outside and do more as they also have challenges you can compete in every month and badges you can earn to really keep you going out there and uh, prizes you can win as well. But Team Goose, I hear you cry. I wouldn't know a falcon from a ferret. <laughs> well, don't worry, because Birda has an amazing community on there who can help you ID what you see. Take a picture of what you've seen and the community can ID it. Very knowledgeable and already a member of the community or very knowledgeable and want to join a community helping others, you can help ID other people's pictures that they submit. But as well as this community aspect, there's also a whole species ID and guide built into the app with facts on all the birds around you. It can suggest where you can go in your local area to see birds. There may be national parks nearby and you can see what's been seen there. Um, And for those of you in the UK, there's now bird songs built into the species ID guide as well, which is fantastic. Yeah. 
So we're taking a look at a couple standout species from around the world, and this week we're going south. We're in some ways migrating. Aye. And where do we migrate to? Africa. Africa. So we're in Kenya. We're in Kenya to visit the arrow-marked babbler. Oh. I don't know anything about the arrow-marked babbler. The arrow-marked babbler is part of the laughing thrush family. Okay. Do we know anything about them? I know, I'm aware of them. Okay. Uh, I know that there's laughing thrushes in like Asia and things like that, but I'm just going to Google the arrow... What is it? Marked. Arrow marked babbler. So it's got a very scratchy laughing call. Oh, hello. Yeah. It's got little arrow tips on its chest. Right. Well, take us through it. Well, so it's a little... How big is that going to be? I'm sort of guessing here but maybe it looks like a large thrush sort of size it's um predominantly gray brown and it's got all on its head down its throat and down its chest right down to almost where its legs are it's got these white marks on the end on the very tips of the feathers you know how feathers come to a point and they're marked like little arrow tips and then it's got a really cool burning yellow amber sort of eye it's a very striking looking thing and it's found across a huge stretch of Africa, Angola, Botswana, Burundi, the Congo, Gabon, Kenya, Namibia, South Africa, and many more. So basically most of sub-Saharan Africa, mm. you'd be able to see the Aramark Babula, which for listeners in South Africa, it's been logged throughout the country. Hey. And there are some fantastic photos have been submitted of it there. There's a picture here of two of them sat together on a branch with their beaks wide open. I bet they make an, aw- I bet they make an awful noise scratchy laughing yeah oh yeah you did say that yeah they look like babbling what are they babbling about what they got what they got to chat about i'm sure they're lovely i'm sure they've got lovely personalities but i'm going to take the arrow mark babbler in small doses okay are there other babblers you know yeah there's there's best babbler there's quite a lot of babblers Adam's best babbler but <laughs> the only one i've really got experience with is the sulawesi babbler um from indonesia mm. and that was just a little brown job and it would, yeah. I, I don't have the. They don't feature high on the Bannum's bird list, but they've got their place, you know. They're not. They're certainly not down with the cormorants and the penguins. Okay. <laughs> they have got very piercing eyes. Yeah, they're really cool eyes. Yeah. They're great. Yeah. I'm gonna say eye color high, arrow marked, arrow tipped feathers high. I like those. The possible assumption of scratchy, laughing, babbling. Yeah. We invite anyone listening in South Africa to let us know what it's like living near a community of arrow-marked babblers. Well, let's let's listen. Let's let's get the sound of one now. I could live with that. Yeah, it's not as harsh and loud as I thought it was going to be, but it's it's not particularly tuneful it's not melodic it's like a <laughs> just constantly little laughing sound going on cackling away i guess if you lived near a community of aramark babblers you would want to make sure that you weren't anxious you you know you'd want to be confident in yourself <laughs> yeah, not turn, pa- no paranoid yeah exactly yeah. turn every corner and think nature's mocking you <laughs> <laughs> um but there we go so there's the aramark babbler if you're listening pretty much anywhere in sub-saharan africa but there are thousands upon thousands of other birds out there which you can go and see as well head to the apple app store the google play store your local convenience store ask the cashier for birder and then demand it's free because it is and whether they know what it's about that's is going absolutely nowhere <laughs> head to your app store download it for free get outside and get more with nature
it's time for that part of the show where we take one of nature's magnificent creatures and we pit it against Roddy Shaw in a fight to the death. Now, today's animal has been submitted on Instagram by Scorps Mule? Scropes Mule? One of them. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it's your real name. <laughs> but if it is, I'm very sorry. Yeah. Um, and it is the Tasseled Wobbygong. Oh. No prizes for guessing where the Tasseled Wobbygong is from, listeners. <laughs> Hello, Australia. There's the klaxon. <laughs> it could only be from one place with a name like that. It is found in shallow coral reefs off northern Australia and New Guinea. The tasseled wobbegong is a species of carpet shark. The description I found here says that it is very broad and moderately flattened shark. They are cryptically patterned to give them excellent camouflage against the sand, rocks and caves of the reef where they live. So they're one of these species that spends a lot of the time sitting on the floor camouflaged. What adds to their camouflage is these tassels, which are basically like a beard all around the front of the shark's face and mouth to break up its outline and hide it better against the sea floor. In terms of size, they're known to reach about 1.8 metres in length, which is not far off our size. So you're talking about a shark that's, you know, pretty similar size to us. In the daytime, it's an opportunistic ambush predator, which grabs fish, crustaceans and cephalopods that stray too close. It can also tempt its prey in closer, because the fin on the end of its tail resembles a small fish, complete with a dark eye spot at the base, and it can move this slowly as a lure to bring in passing prey before striking. At night, they're a bit more active in their hunting and they swim around looking for things, but they don't swim particularly fast, they're quite slow swimmers. They've got a huge mouth for their size, lined with rows and rows of sharp teeth in classic shark fashion. There's a record of a 1.3 metre wobbegong eating a 1 metre long brown banded bamboo shark. Jesus. So that's not leaving much room for dessert. Last bit of information. What makes the tasseled wobbegong stand out from the others in its family, the other wobbegongs, is its aggressive behaviour resulting in several apparently unprovoked attacks on people. Gilbert Whiteley even claimed in 1940 that it attacks and generally kills the natives of Papua New Guinea. Although many people believe this to be complete bullshit. <laughs> and that Wobbegongs <laughs> did not, in fact, eat people. God damn it, Gilbert. <laughs> there are many cases of divers approaching them without incident, as long as you act respectfully around them. Uh, oh, and one final thing, a shout out. Because this species is apparently able to be found in the home aquarium trade as it adapts quite well to captivity. So if you're listening and you have a pet tasseled wobbegong, please do get in touch. We'd love to know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, and have tanks over 1.8, big it, enough to house a well, six foot fish. That's the thing. It specifically said the home aquarium trade. Not just like aquariums, but specifically mm. in people's homes. Anyway, with all that in mind, Roddy Shaw, how many tasseled wobbygongs are too many tasseled wobbygongs? It's fun to say. I isn't was it? just about to say I could have said that a few more times. Tasseled <laughs> wobbygong. Um. Okay. Hmm. Of course, it's Australia. Of course, the sea in Australia. I think this is. The most camouflaged thing? Ooh, good shout. It could be. I'm trying to think through our extensive back catalogue now. 
Hmm. Uh, it's very camouflage. Yeah. And the tassels do a good job of breaking up that outline when it's sitting on the seafloor against the rocks. They like to hang out in caves in the daytime. They really lie in these caves, a bit sort of Smaug-esque, with their tail luring in, passing fish. And then they snap them. Where, if, if I... If I if I wanted to betassel myself, mm-hmm. where would I go? Where do you get tassels? You get a haberdashery. A haberdashery. Some great words in this segment. Wobbygong, haberdashery. Yeah. I think I think you would go, I don't know, maybe a haberdashery? Or hobbycraft. What <laughs> <laughs> what Would I fight a wobbegong in a haberdashery? Mm. Is this just interesting word time? Will the solution come to us through a thesaurus? <laughs> You would have to go to, to f- to beat the Wobbegong, maybe you have to become the Wobbegong. I think so. So you have to tassel yourself. I the Wobbegong doesn't need to be in Hobbycraft because it's got its own tassel. No, but I need to be in Hobbycraft. you need to be there. I need to go through. I need to, I think something that camouflaged, I'm not going to see it. I need to get into its mind. Mm. So I'm first, the yeah. first step, listen, Jack, I've, <laughs> if I've said it once, I've said it countless times. The first step in successfully fighting a tasseled wobbegong <laughs> is to visit a haberdashery and betassel yourself. Only then can you assume the mindset. Yep. And once you are in the mind of the wobbegong, then <laughs> woe become the wobbegong. <laughs> so, I am betasseled. Yeah. <laughs> I am in the shallows of Papua New Guinea. Uh-huh. I'm lying in wait. Are you gonna? So you're gonna employ the same tactic? Yeah. But then what if we're so camp? We, we can, what if we're lying next, to, next each to each other and we don't even know. All of a sudden, like, a fish just starts swimming next to your head. Hmm. You're like, oh, that's a nice fish. I'll go and pet it. You, maybe you need to lure them out. Then I get captured for the home aquarium trade. <laughs> <laughs> the next thing you know, <laughs> maybe you need to lie in wait with on your. On your hand or either on your foot, raised over your back, scorpion style, you've got a law of a female wobbegong. Yes. That you can tempt in. Which I could have asked the haberdasher to prepare in advance, right? <laughs> hand- I think you'd need to. Uh, I don't think you can turn up on the day. You, you, <laughs> I'm just saying, you, you know, it, you, there, are, I've, there are many things in my wheelhouse, but I would need to have someone else prepare yeah. the female wobbegong Yeah, and, But I don't think they do that as a walk-in service. <laughs> <laughs> two two wobbegongs, please. Your finest wobbegongs. But if you, if you create a... Um, yeah, and a fake wobbegong, then you might attract in a amorous wobbegong looking for a good time. And then I think, okay, we know that a wobbegong can stomach something up to a meter in length. <laughs> yeah, we do, which is insane when it was only 1.3 meters long itself. Total madness. What I'm saying is that means, but do, do they have sharp, sharp teeth? Yeah, they do. Do yeah, they? They've got the, yeah, they've got the classic rows of sharp teeth. Yeah, uh, they do. They do. Yeah, because mm. I thought the same. I thought maybe it's one of those like big suction things, like a but, sucker mouth. But no, they've got big teeth. Okay, I would have right. I would have my haberdasher mm. prepare for me my female wobbegong lure. Yep, my many tassels, uh-huh. and also I want to say the word crocheted slash knitted armor. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Specifically, unlike possible, unlike normal armor. I want this, I want a very tough, ba- you know like armbands when you go swimming as a child? Oh, yeah, yeah. 
Right, but like further up, right at the joint of arm to torso, right, right at the joint of leg to torso, uh-huh. those joints are what I want thickly padded yeah. with heavy wool. Okay. Is that because that's a meter long? Yes. <laughs> Your limbs are about a meter long. My limbs are about a meter long. So I therefore reckon that four wobbegong, <laughs> because the fifth wobbegong, one wobbegong would take the arm, yeah. one wobbegong would take the leg. But as long as its teeth are in the in bit the, of armor, you just, the, you're just waving them around. You're getting it stuck now. Stuck on your limbs. Exactly. But it is Got once in. the four limbs have been bewobbegonged, <laughs> <laughs> then I am soon to be gone. <laughs> because the fifth wobbegong, the only thing left is my head. Yeah. And that, even, you know, it's not the one. Yeah. So I think it, I think the maximum number of wobbegongs, once you have prepared yourself accordingly <laughs> yes. with your haberdasher, yeah. it's five wobbegongs. That's too many. Yeah. We have a question here from tfitzg, t.fitzg on Instagram. Anyone with questions? At how many geese? And he asks... Your arch enemy lives on an island. What invasive species are you introducing to ruin their life? <laughs> oh, this is fun. Yeah. Uh, okay. I love the idea of having like an arch enemy. Do you? Yeah, it's just something I thought of before. Like I once met somebody yeah. who just said that they'd got a nemesis. Uh, who... Who has a nemesis in this day and age? Nemesis is the fun word, yeah. isn't it? But arch enemy, it's yeah, uh, no. it's the same. Oh, completely it's the same cloth. Completely, but but nemesis has a level of cursing the sky. Yeah, damn you! <laughs> I guess. Do you think if you maybe in the way that people like you try and find your partner in life? Yeah, you know, your soulmate. Exactly. Maybe it should be as socially accepted to actively... Like, you have speed dating. Maybe we should make a Tinder, a Bumble, for finding your arches. Speed nemesising. The, the person that's the exact antithesis of you. So that just whenever something bad happens, you can just turn, cast your head to the sky and go, Damn you to hell, Barry! <laughs> <laughs> okay, so... Our arch enemy. What would you look for in an arch enemy? Well, so here's my thought process. I said just a few seconds ago that it's the person who's the antithesis of you. I actually disagree because mm. I think your arch enemy, for example, and we won't name any names, but our arch enemy living on an island may well be another nature podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it's got to be, there's a reason that you don't like them. Whereas if it's someone who's the complete opposite of you, I guess if it's someone who doesn't like nature or whatever, they might be trying to destroy it or something. But it's more fun to think about an arch enemy being, you know, in Despicable Me, where it's the two villains fighting to be the most villainous villain. That's yes. the sort of arch enemy that I think is the fun kind of arch enemy. Yes. Okay. I said so. So someone who is also competing for the same title or has a similar drive in life. I think so. Or yeah. I mean, anytime you go for a job interview and you don't get it, whoever yeah. did get it, arch enemy. Yeah. Candidate. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So we're... So are you suggesting we're sticking another nature podcast on an island? <laughs> <laughs> Let's say, yeah, for, for the sake of this hypothesis, miscellaneous nature podcast stuck on an island and we're unleashing an invasive species on them. So are we assuming that the island just has 
a perfect mythical ecosystem and any animal that we can introduce to it is going on to become an invasive species. In my head, yeah. So it's yeah. not... I don't know how big the Robinson Crusoe island was, yeah. but I'm saying Robinson Crusoe size. Like, it can sustain yeah. a person. It can sustain enough. The kind of place that Bear Grylls... You know that show Bear Grylls the Island? Yeah. That kind that like You can walk across it in, I don't know, under a day, Yeah, I think. Yeah. And then, you know, there's water there. So there's enough there that, you know, your nemesis could live. Mm-hmm. And what? How was it? How was the question phrased? Was it that? It was because obviously, if we're introducing tigers to the island, arch enemy gone. What invasive species are you introducing to ruin their life? Okay. Okay. Just thinking through our history. Yes. Termites are bad. So this was that I was thinking about termites because I thought if you introduce termites, whatever shelter they build, yeah, just getting eaten. Yeah. But could we introduce something similar to your tiger theme that is not his- is not known to be an invasive species, like rhinos? Yeah. Oh, totally. I yeah. think we could, yeah. Yeah, it can be anything. Because we know Pablo Escobar's hippos are Anything can become an invasive terrifying. species. Yeah. Okay. So I, I think maybe, maybe the reason invasive species that we exist with today are invasive species is because they cause a problem. So we could probably introduce any of those to the island and they're not going to be great. But I don't think... Something like a cane toad... Oh, no, no, that is true. No, but I was going to say, I don't think they're... If you were on an invasive... If you were on a desert island and cane toads appeared... They're not going to be a problem. They're not going to be a problem no, you're for right. you. You're right. You know? Um, feel free to send in if you live in Australia... And have first-hand accounts of just how hellish it is to live with them. But, yeah. like, they ruin an ecosystem, but they don't ruin your life. Yeah. We need something which ruins your life. Yeah. So termites could. Yes. Termites could make your life hellish because we, when we were in Mexico, I don't know if we ever actually said this, we were just sat there one night and a whole bloody tree fell down behind us. Yeah. I've never towards been... Towards us. Towards us. Yeah. I've never been that close to a tree falling down before. It terrifying. It was amazing. And when we got to the tree, yeah. you could see that inside it was all hollowed out. Yeah. And there were termites all in it. Yeah. And they'd just eaten the inside of this tree until it got weak enough that it fell. And at one of the other camps, that same week, another tree had fallen down, relatively close, I believe, to where the people were sleeping. Oh. So I would yeah. say termites are up there for being capable of ruining your life on an island. And another thing I think is going to be important to think about is how easy could this person get rid of said mm, animals? Yes. If it's a relatively small island and you're introducing something big, you could probably fight back if they were, you know, if you were, if you introduced deer to the island, yeah. not going to take long before you could see to them. Termites, there's no getting rid of them. And deer likely not ruining your life because venison's delicious yes that's very true so yeah in tackling the animal you get reward yeah. in tackling termites you just yeah well, it's, yeah you can't do it what about those um what are they called murder hornets yeah yeah they, they well the asian hornets they don't sound fun no they're yeah they're called asian hornets but the british press likes to call them murder hornets um and they are an invasive species of hornet that yeah. is in Europe now. Yes. Um, and they they kill bees. So they don't kill you. They've got a nasty sting. Yeah. But it's not like tarantula hawk wasp. Okay. Bullet ants. 
Bullet ants would be bad. Bullet ants would be bad. Army ants. Army ants. Just that would ro- ruin your life. Yeah, roaming around the island. That would ruin your life. Just on hornets, I saw a video the other day of someone, I don't know, swiping through reels or TikTok or whatever, and it was like a pest control thing. And basically, it was the the camera was looking at the entrance in the ground to a wasp nest, mm. and they just had like a Hoover mouth to it, and as the wasps were coming out, were just getting sucked up into the thing i don't know if that is standard pest control practice (laughs) but can you imagine being handed that vacuum bag after that's happened of an entire and the the, like voiceover was like hey just here again it was american hey just here again you know we're tackling another yellow jacket nest or something like that and i was like by just hoovering (laughs) them up into a you're gonna have to open that What are you doing? That's the worst idea I've ever heard. Imagine just accidentally opening that in your home when you've done a bit of hoovering in the living room. Oh, my God. I couldn't think of anything. Or if you're talking about a way to ruin a nemesis's life, find a wasp nest, hoover them up, (laughs) hand them that bag, and be like, off you go. Good luck. Um, I think for me it's termites or ants. Yeah. I'm trying to think of... Oh, quick sorry quick other thing what about the water surrounding the island yeah so this that's what i was thinking i was thinking um if they're in my head when everyone's stuck on a on an island there is fish that they're eating yes so what if we introduce something like lionfish that ate all their fish yep or um i was uh, briefly flashed into my head was saltwater crocodiles just lying in wait for them yep but that's not making their life miserable that's making their life over <laughs> uh, so i don't know about that one um i was thinking box jellyfish oh okay. and having thought of all of that we're just making australia <laughs> that's... australia is the island that is mis- the miserable to, to live on send someone to ruin their life <laughs> i mean famously yeah. that's what britain did it is yeah good point that like Britain literally took all of its arch enemies, criminals, <laughs> and sent them to the island that ne- would make them most miserable. Nemesis of the crown. Um, okay, I think I'm retracting termites, and I think I'm going with army or bullet ants. Yeah, because termites. They, I just feel like something might, there'll be birds, something might peck at mm. them. Yeah, they'll knock down the trees. But we have lived near a big ant nest. Oh, yeah. And it was horrific. It infiltrates every part of your daily life. Every single aspect of your life yeah. becomes ant. Over, yeah, becomes ant. <laughs> yeah. So, if our nemesis was sent to a desert island... Mm. We're filling them full of ants. (laughs) And so ends a particularly radioactive episode of How Many Geese. A big thank you all for listening and for writing in with your questions and animals for Roddy to fight. In particular, a shout out to Jake, Esther and Lois, who dropped us a little donation after last week's episode over on our buymeacoffee.com account. So thank you to you guys. Rate the podcast, share the podcast, tell all your mates how great the podcast is, and we'll be here sharing the maddest wildlife facts we come across. We'll see you next Tuesday.